This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hey, For the Wild community, it's Ayana here. We are getting so close to reaching our goal of 2,000 Patreon subscribers per month. If you'd like to be a part of keeping the podcast going, Head over to Patreon and sign up or donate through our website. We really need you to continue this work. Thanks so much. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Stephanie Brendel. That's the kind of thinking that, that we're struggling with, that um, sharks are really only seen as a collection of parts that can be sold. Stephanie Brendel is an advocate for sharks and a creative and social entrepreneur that leads campaigns and projects in all corners of this planet. As founder and executive director of Shark Allies and team member of various NGO coalitions, she has dedicated her last two decades to bringing greater protection to sharks. As filmmaker and producer, she also filmed and produced a documentary called Extinction Soup about the perils of shark finning. Well, welcome, Stephanie, to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to diving in with you around sharks and oceans and all that good stuff. Thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, well, I'd like to begin our conversation in reverence for our shark kin. These truly wild and mystic apex predators have inhabited waters for 450 million years meaning their existence even predates trees. I know there are over 400 species of sharks, each one, you know, with its unique set of characteristics. But I wonder if you could speak to the majesty of these creatures and how easy it should be for us to replace common fear with a deep sense of respect for their resilience. Well, I think if everyone had the privilege of meeting sharks in person, we would have a completely different general feeling about sharks. I think we're, as human beings, we're scared of what we don't know and what we don't see. And the less we see it, the more scared we are because uh, we fill in the blanks with the myths and the stories and the anecdotes that we hear. And the only anecdotes we ever hear of sharks are shark attacks. And 
for anyone that has had a chance to be in the water and see sharks, this this whole impression changes from you know at the minimum being apprehensive and at the worst having a phobia it changes to being completely fascinated and, and you know recognizing this presence in the water there are large animals and um you know unlike some of the the smaller fish you really feel their presence in the water when you're there and you realize immediately that they're just there to do their job they're there because it's an it's the, their natural place. We're the ones out of place, and they have no particular interest in us. They're not suddenly turning to attack anyone. They're not. They're looking at us as maybe a curiosity, and um, you know that is something. It's very hard to get that across to people. More and more now, you know, we have beautiful imagery in video and and photos, and that has really helped. But it still doesn't give you the true feeling and the true respect that you feel when you're in the water with them. Mm, yeah, I could imagine that. I'm just, yeah, picturing myself in the water with them and the connection that I'm sure would come through. And yeah. It, it's a, if I can, can say it in, in a different way, it's it's not necessarily a connection where you, you know, when you meet a dog or a horse and, and you feel very much like you want to go pet them and, and, you know, you want to almost cuddle them. With sharks, you realize that you are meeting a, pred a predator, a wild animal, and there is a huge amount of um, respect there that... It's not necessarily frightening, but you do understand that that's a different type of animal. You know, that animal really is there and couldn't care less about human beings. And you do understand that, that you truly don't mean anything to them, which is, uh, I think it's a great experience for human beings to not be important. And I kind of like that about wild animals that, you know, in their, in their worldview and in their daily going-ons, you, you don't matter except when you are the one that hunts them or, you know, hurts them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's a big difference between sharks and encountering sharks and some of the other animals. It may be similar to meeting a grizzly bear or wolves or lions, you know, be, meeting a predator is, is on a whole nother level. Mm. Oh, thank you for speaking to that. And <laughs> I think it's so important to hear about that humbling experience for us humans, because we really need that <laughs> a lot. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I appreciate that. And we don't get that very often, you know, we don't, uh, mm -hmm. we don't get connected to real raw nature very often. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we don't have a lot of natural fears. I mean, that not, we have natural fears, but we don't have a lot of things that threaten us in nature anymore, except natural disasters. But we, on average, when you go out, you know, the chances of, of having a dangerous animal around are pretty small. And I think connecting to that primal part of you that really puts you way back to when, you know, when humans lived on the land and were just another animal. We were, for those animals, for land predators, we may have been prey. And uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing to connect to that at times. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's often overlooked, but sharks play a really vital role in our oceans. And as I understand, 
Sharks act similarly to vultures as they scavenge for sick and injured fish, working to keep oceans healthy and populations in balance. And I know that, for example, when the eastern seaboard saw a local decline of great white sharks, there was a huge boom in rays and thus a total decline in scallops. And so we'd be naive to think that we won't see this happen worldwide should shark populations continue to plummet. What are the immediate implications of global shark extirpation? And perhaps within that, you could also highlight for us the reality that there is actually no way to mimic or recreate the role of sharks. Yeah, so that's a, it's a complicated um, uh thing to explain, you know, shark, there are so many different shark species and each species has a, a certain niche in the ecosystem that they take care of. So while some may operate a little bit like a vulture, but others are more, you know, akin to a lion or, or a wolf, um, basically the, the pressure of predators not only contra- controls the populations in the sense that they take out the the sick, the dead, and the dying, and therefore keeping the healthiest alive to reproduce. They're also, of course, taking care of, like you said, the dead. And even just their sheer presence changes how all the other animals behave and how they, for example, graze on seagrasses or how far they move away from the reef to hunt. So there's, um, they're really um, ecosystem engineers where when they're around, everything changes. And I, my most favorite example is uh, the wolves in Yosemite Park that you know when they were reintroduced because they had a problem with deer um it changed everything from how the aspen trees were growing because of how the the deer were grazing and even where they were where they would mingle and hang out and of course uh, they controlled the numbers the wolves controlled the numbers but it also affected erosion because of how the, you know the trees were growing and shrubs were eaten down and all the way down to how the river was flowing so this is this is the role that we really need to see sharks as in the ocean <clears throat> they are controlling the ecosystem in many many different ways and that of course is something good luck for us to figure out how to do we couldn't even do it on land that's why the wolves were reintroduced the humans could not replicate what the wolves were doing because there's too many layers and too many very subtle effects Good luck trying to do something like that in the ocean. You know, you cannot have boundaries there. You cannot make fences. You, we can barely even get lower than 300 feet in the water. So how would we ever control it? And you cannot breed sharks in captivity. So once we lose them, it's not like we're going to go on a massive um, action to reintroduce and replenish the stock. So this is, this is a free service we get. You know, a shark's taking care of the ocean naturally have done it in the most perfect way that we could never replicate. And all we have to do is, is stop from overhunting them. We don't really have to do much more. There is not an additional investment that we have to spend. But the only way we can do it is, is to stop overfishing them in the first place because they do not replenish themselves very quickly because they are predators and predators by default, reproduce very slowly because they're not being hunted and therefore 
you know, the nature has designed it in a way where they produce in a limited number. So here we are, you know, it's, um, we have an incredibly important animal for a, a system that the whole planet depends on. All of us, no matter where you live, depend on the ocean in one way or another. And um, we're just haphazardly just, you know, overfishing them and we don't really care because we can't see it. We can't see what's going on under the ocean. So out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd like to focus on some of the most immediate threats to shark populations. But I wonder if we might be able to do so in recognition that this is what capitalism looks like at sea. Much of the ocean's biodiversity is at risk because of modern industrialized fishing efforts and the way in which the global markets operate. And I think, unfortunately, for quite some time, the blame has been placed on other countries, so-called bad actors or cultural differences. But the problem is really the scale at which these global captures are taking place. And quite frankly, what I see is the callousness of capitalism. So with this in mind, I wonder if you can share why there is an economic benefit to killing sharks and the scale at which it's being done around the world. Yeah, it's um, the numbers are staggering. When we look at how many sharks are being taken every year, you know, the estimates, depending on what research you are looking at and how conservatively you want to use the numbers, it is somewhere between 63 million to 273 million sharks. Other studies say it's 70 to 100 million sharks. Let's just even go with the lowest number, 63 million sharks per year taken. That is a staggering number when you even just try to imagine what that looks like in actual bodies. The sharks are valuable to retain, even if they're bycatch these days, because of the parts that can be sold. You know, if there's value to sell something, then it's being either hunted or being targeted or kept even if it was caught accidentally. So sharks are being taken for meat, for fins, for, uh, in the case of manta rays, which are also part of the family of sharks, the elasmobranchs, they're taken for the gill plates. And then, of course, shark liver oil. So all of those products contribute to giving value to sharks. Some sharks are more valuable than others. From some, you can only take the meat, others only the fins. Sometimes you can take the fins and the oil or only the fins and the meat. So there's not separate markets or separate fisheries for you know, the different parts. So it's very hard to dissect how much are sharks hunted for one or the other product. And um, then the additional problem to knowing the numbers is of course um, that uh, there's a lot of illegal, underreported or unreported fishing going on. And the labeling between the countries, you know, the coding of how things are being shipped around the world, any shark parts could be thrown in as general seafood, so you wouldn't even know it's shark. So it's really a chaotic trade that is global. And in essence, what drives it is the market and the value that can be derived from sharks and shark parts. And a large part of that is still to be contributed to fins because the fins have the highest value of uh, on, on the shark. So 
keeping it and only making money on fins and maybe a few extra cents on meat or let's say the or even just if the, the meat could even be just given to uh, the pet food industry it's often not even for human consumption so it not, doesn't even help us with food security so it's a very sort of it's a shady business that where everyone passes the buck as you said you know each trade says oh it's the other guys we're not the bad ones it's the other country it's this other industry it's the fin it's the the market for fins it's the market for oil it's the market for meat and everything else is considered byproducts when you know when you think about it who eats 200 million sharks? It's impossible to even imagine that we need this many sharks because there are not that many countries that actually consume shark. So what are all these animals being killed for is really a basic question that um, everyone tries to avoid. Hmm. Wow. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just hearing those numbers and thinking about the pet food is so horrifying and disgusting. And you know, I'm just thinking about the international demand for shark, ray, and skate meat has more than doubled since the early 1990s. And I do wonder how much of this demand grew in response to marketing or accessibility. But I guess specifically, I'd like to ask you about how you're going about reducing the unsustainable consumption of something like shark fin. And, you know, potentially how much of that work is also at some level recognizing the ways in which we exploit the natural world to signal class status. Yeah. So the the reason why the meat market for sharks has gone up is probably a mix of, of several reasons. One of them is that other fish stocks have been in, in certain regions so depleted that shark ended up being the only thing that can be caught. And suddenly sharks, when they used to be considered a trash fish, well, that's all we can get. So that's what they're going to catch. And then also, once the market is keen on selling a product, they create the demand in a sense where they just push it to the market and start advertising it, or they push it into you know the pet food industry. They will find a way to sell it or to market it. So it goes both ways. It's not just that... Um, you know, consumers want it and therefore it's caught. It also goes the other way around. If it gets caught and they want to sell it, they can also create a market for it. For example, you know, the the, the guild rakers, that, that market didn't even exist a few decades ago. And because manta rays are so easy to catch and was something that was also targeted for their fins, even though they're small, you know, they just they somebody made up a product and, and put out some stories that it might be good for you, just like shark cartilage. Somebody wanted to find a market for shark cartilage and, and the, the let's say, rumors were put out that they help cancer and they help your joints and they have all these things and there was never even a study done on it. So you know, it's easy to sell snake oil to people when you tell them the wonderful effects it can have. And... Of course, a big driver of the shark meat market was the fact that um, fins are worth so much money. And when sharks are caught for their fins, it makes sense to also try to sell the the meat, especially in countries where um, the law demands that you bring in the sharks whole. 
in order to take the fins when you can't do finning at sea anymore because that was something that was outlawed by many countries you know a few decades ago because it's cruel and wasteful finning the finning of sharks was uh, outlawed meaning you can't cut the fins off and throw the bodies back into the ocean sharks were meant to be brought back whole and then you could process them so since they had to bring the bodies back they then said well let's sell the meat and let's make the meat more marketable so that really increased the demand or the market for for shark meat and that's just as you said in the beginning it's it's capitalism in in the sense that it's just about who can make the money and short-term thinking. The people making the money and paying for sharks right now, they are not paying for the damage that is being done to the ocean. That's all of us. All of us will be paying for that. Um, that goes all the way to you know, the fish oil industry for supplements, and it goes all the way to cosmetics and squalene. Um, they consider shark squalene an, an inexpensive product. That's because they're not truly paying for the sharks that they're using. They're only paying for the oil that somebody gave them. That person fishing that shark did not truly pay for the cost of that shark, the true cost of the shark that it, it, it means to the environment and to all of us. So that's the kind of thinking that, that we're struggling with, that um, sharks are really only seen as a collection of parts that can be sold. You know, you could put a price tag on their fin, on their liver, on their meat, maybe on their teeth, and maybe on their skin at some times. And that's all they're, they're looked at is a collection of parts. They're not looked at as the value they have as, as a complete being. And, you know, I had this conversation with a friend just the other week. No one in their right mind would consider hunting lions or tigers on a commercial level for food you know and it just immediately strikes you as wrong and yes maybe their coat would be you know that their fur would be valuable their claws their maybe their livers maybe you know their teeth there would be all sorts of things you could probably make off a lion but i bet you everyone that just heard that line immediately sort of recoiled and said well that would be in that would be stupid. That can't work. And that's really on a different level. What we're dealing with with sharks is that they are slow producing and reproducing and uh, they are predators. And but we just look at them as as a product, nothing but but dollar signs. Let it go. It's like the ones that came before you. Stones rolling back into the ocean. Shake it off. It was only just a cost Money, money, money Can't buy the ocean Mm -hmm. 
I believe that over the past couple of years, there's been significant pressure across many countries to regulate wildlife trading through multilateral treaties like the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna. But I think it's probably misguided to think that these sort of treaties come close to addressing the problem. So what are some of the discrepancies between the international level versus the national level when it comes to regulating shark products? Or what are some of the most glaring legal loopholes that the industry is able to exploit? Well, let me go straight to CITES, the convention you just mentioned. It's very important that we get animals and species listed on, on the CITES listings. However, it's only one part of many things that have to be done because what people don't understand about this listing is that First of all, it is a convention of treaty members that signed on. This is not every country that is part of CITES. And the different appendices, you know, appendix one, two, and three, mean different types of protection. And it really is a trade agreement, meaning that if the species is in one of the lists, it means that on the highest listing, for example, in appendix one, they're permitted to be hunted only under exceptional circumstances, meaning, well, if a country determines that it's an exceptional circumstance, that those protected species can still be hunted. And in Appendix 2 is, you know, it, it, there's this term called non-detrimental, meaning, you know, a country can only trade that species if it could be done in a non-detrimental way or if the, if the utilization is not incompatible with survival. Well, that leaves a lot of room to be interpreted by each country. The US, for example, determined that Mako is, um, you know, in where Mako is incredibly endangered and the numbers are, are dropping. But in the US, they, the um, authorities determined that, you know, the US fisheries were doing such a great job. Uh, it's not the, the hunting and the trade of Mako is not detrimental. So it can continue. So there are lots of ways to, to wiggle through these. Uh, also, other endangered species listings, there are just listings. It doesn't mean that they're enforceable, you know, and, and when people hear that something is on the red list, it doesn't mean anyone is sticking to that list saying, oh, oh, it's on the list. We better not hunt it. It means someone still has to enforce that. Certain products, you know, uh, one of the more successful ways to enforce uh, endangered species products is to go at them at a trade level for sure, because protecting the whole animal sometimes is difficult. But in the case of fins or elephant ivory, um, it's many countries have decided to prohibit the sale and the trade. And this is what we've been working on a lot with fins is to prohibit the sale and trade of the actual product, the fins, so they can't come and go or be sold or be offered for sale in restaurants. That is, again, it doesn't necessarily stop it at the fishing level, but it stops a country from con contributing to the problem. So you can... You can tell already that none of these things are the, the absolute perfect solutions. And unfortunately, that's what we're dealing with, with animal protection. We have, you know, 10 or 15 different tools and we try each one to, to chip away at the problem. And hopefully the combination of all those tools will bring about more protection. 
you know, that of course, you know, you have to add to it um, regulating fisheries or on land, you know, creating parks in, in the ocean, creating marine protected areas, all of those things, none, no single one is perfect. And when people like to jump on certain campaigns saying, oh, well, what's the point of this? It's still not going to fix overfishing or it's still not going to catch the, it's still not going to address the problem of bycatch. Well, there's always something else that's worse and always something else that will not be addressed, but you have to start somewhere. And that's really the only thing we can work with is, is trying to work on protection and conservation on many different levels. Yeah, and because of how media has historically talked about shark finning, I think many might think that this is an issue that is solely being driven by Asian countries. But the United States is the seventh largest shark finning country in the world, and we're also complicit in terms of its location in the supply chain. Back in 2019, it was reported that between 2010 to 2017, the United States was the middleman to roughly 772 tons of shark fin exports, or 1.29 million sharks, that pass through U.S. ports. So what does the United States complicity look like in the illegal shark fin trade, and how could stronger regulatory resources change this? Well, if you think about it in terms of how you would deal with this with drugs, if you're not the user and you're not the producer of the drugs, then if you are the one selling it in the middle, what, what's your part of, um, you know, of the problem? You're just as guilty because you're enabling the trade and the movement of the product. And by the, it, it, through that, you're not making a statement that you're against it. You know, you cannot say you're against finning or the trade of fins and then allow the trade a lot of the justification for that is that there's a big part of even the science community that still likes to claim that sustainable shark fishing is a possibility and that we should focus all of our attention towards developing sustainable shark fishing and therefore the fins should be a valuable product that make that industry uh, possible. Now, the problem with that is, is that the only places it has proven to be possible were very isolated, small pockets of shark species where there was a very highly controlled fishery that only fished at a certain time of the year, you know, didn't take certain, let's say, didn't take the females and was extremely um, conscientious about sticking to quotas, which is not something that is possible on a large scale. So there is, there is um, a justification that comes from the fisheries agencies, from our own agencies that are in charge of conservation in fisheries, but they tend to really rule in favor of the commercial fishing lobby most of the time. They want to keep that industry going because the U.S. has a mandate to, you know, to use its resources at a maximum yield or optimal yield, not maximum, optimal yield. That's even in our Fisheries Act. It says it, it should use all resources at an optimal level, meaning not fishing enough is, is not a good thing. And I think that thinking has to drastically change because for decades that has been the mandate and look where it's gotten us. You know, I, I, if I always say if the fisheries agencies were a corporation, 
they would be failing miserably. They would be bankrupt. They would be fired from mismanagement. But, you know, because it is government agencies and um, they have, they choose their own experts on their panels, they can continue to say we're the authority and we say it's possible and therefore we're going to continue to allow it. So, yeah, we every country that participates in the fin trade is part of the problem, whether you're fishing your own sharks or not. And um, you can't you can't really use that excuse anymore. Yeah, and just thinking about the drones and the it's almost like this warlike mentality of finding fish in the oceans and the technology being used to chase fish and shark is horrifying. It speaks a lot to where we are as just a culture right now and yeah, I wanted to mention that what initially drew me to Shark Allies was some of the news that was coming out early in 2020 that was talking about the ramifications of possible COVID-19 vaccines containing squalene, which is a compound derived from shark liver oil. And I think most of us, you know, are more familiar with squalene as a substance found in cosmetic products. And although there are plant substitutes to squalene, I understand that these are more cumbersome to procure and also more expensive than shark-based squalene. So to begin, I wonder if you could clarify what does the current demand for squalene, I hope I'm saying this right, look like and what industry is behind it and how many sharks are being killed to meet this demand? Um, first of all, I think squalene and squalene both are correct to okay. say. We've <laughs> okay. been having Great. this discussion for a while. We're, we're not really sure. I, I used to always say squalene mm-hmm. until everyone around me started to say squalene. So I, I skipped back and forth as well. Um, so the the cosmetics industry is still the, the larger user of shark oil. The fact that it is used, uh, the liver oil is used you know, to make squalene for vaccines was something completely new that we stumbled across. I mean, for us, it was new. I know that other people knew about this and of course may have known about it, but but also not thought it was a big problem until we looked into it. It became more relevant because of the COVID uh, vaccines. My thinking was, if we are going to see sharks as an animal that saves human lives, that can become a really difficult thing to overcome, even if there are alternatives. You know, once the the recognition or the belief is there that we need sharks to fight COVID, that's what initially scared me the most about this. I said that's just one more reason that will give fisheries a free-for-all to say hey we're doing it to 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 save human human life that's the initial thought i had when i came across this and when when actually my team came across it It wasn't me and yes let me say straight from the beginning that the amount of squalene used in vaccines right now is still small comparable to what's used in cosmetics and Squalene use is still very small compared to uh, other products like fins and meat. The point is that in the case of squalene, it can be made from many, many sources. And the belief that it is harder to make 
and that it is more expensive to make is not really true anymore. That is something that was put out. And yes, it might have been true when sharks were incredibly plentiful. But just think about what will happen when a shark uh, fishery collapses. Well, then squalene is going to go, the price for squalene will go up very quickly. It's very a very unreliable source. Also, depending on an, a wild animal for a substance that is needed on a global basis for something that is very important, like a vaccine, it seems incredibly short-sighted to me because um, this is something we don't just need one time. This is going to be for decades. We're going to have new mutations. Uh, there's going to be more coronaviruses. And once uh, more and more squalene adjuvants, let's say, in the case of vaccines, squalene is in the adjuvant, once more and more, more of them are being patented and used, they will also be marketed. Once it is a product, it will be sold, it will be made, and it will be used. So it's not so much about what is happening immediately now. It's, it's where this could lead and where this could, it could just be one more product that means additional shark species will be taken. I understand that squalene very often, the liver oil is very often a byproduct of another fishery. Nobody's going out to hunt sharks specifically for vaccine squalene. That's not what we're saying. But shark liver oil is most abundant in deep sea sharks, sharks that, are live, that live below 300 to 1500 meters. And those are sharks that may not even be commercially exploited for any other reason. So suddenly there will be an interest in, in retaining sharks that, you know, that are actually quite mysterious. They haven't even been studied. Half of them are highly threatened and the other half have never even been studied. We don't even know about their life cycles and, and how they reproduce or how many of them there are. So there's a lot of problems with, uh, with squalene in vaccine use. The fact that it is the processing might be more expensive. It connects to the issue of um, purification. Squalene for cosmetics does not have to have have to be as pure as it has to be for vaccines, uh, of course. So the oil from olives, which is a very common squalene in cosmetics, is very difficult to get to that purity of vaccine use, but. Squalene can be made from many other sources, and one of them that is uh, highly, you know, usable for vaccines is um, bioengineered uh, squalene made from uh, sugarcane that is then fed to to yeast, and yeast, and that will then produce any kind of squalene that you want under extremely controlled processes. So. That just shows you it can be done, and in you know some a process like that is reproducible in the exact same way under very controlled conditions and does not have to be taken from a wild animal species. If it costs a little extra money for r and d and testing, I think that is a cost that the pharmaceutical industry can afford because they are going to make billions and billions of dollars off of vaccines. And so is the beauty industry. If it costs a little more to figure out how to use a not a, a plant squalene or a bioengineered squalene, so be it. 
because again, these companies are not really paying for the true cost of sharks. And to claim that sharks need to be used because they're cheaper is not going to hold up very much longer. Gosh, and just to even want to use the excuse that sharks are cheaper is really sick. And it says so much about where we are as a, yeah. as a culture. And I have to say that there are probably some brands and some companies, especially small, smaller ones, that may not even realize that there's shark in their squalene because mm-hmm. the way it is being marketed, sometimes uh, squalene is just sold, could be from animal or plants, and it's not doesn't even mention mm-hmm. the word shark. So mm-hmm. there's a huge awareness-raising need, and which is part of the reason why why we're doing it is it's not so much that we see squalene as the worst problem, but it is something that the consumers are not aware of. And honestly, a lot of consumers are kind of shocked when they find out that their cosmetics do have sharks in them uh, and that, that some of their vaccines or treatments, you know, there, there's other things that, that um, squalene is in. There's some bacteria, bactericides, there's some hemorrhoidal creams. Um, there's all sorts of things that have shark in them. Some of them, it's it's really just to be used as an emollient. And I'm sorry, but we have lots of other ways to create emollients than to kill an, uh, mm-hmm. a wild animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just interesting, too, to point out the connection between shark decline and our obsession with youth uh, in terms yeah. of beauty products. It's like I said, I, I just have this um, this other analysis going on in my mind around the insanity of it all. And um, yeah, now, you know, I understand that typically squalene or squalene comes from deep sea sharks because they produce significantly larger amounts of it. But this means that entire species may potentially be decimated as they are solely caught and killed for their livers. So what is needed to prevent this from happening? And if you are consuming squalene products, what do you need to know? Well, I think consumer awareness helps a lot. And we've actually had lots of people helping us with contacting companies to ask them to switch. Um, I think consumer pressure can cause especially beauty companies more than than anything um, to to change what they use i think also transparency and labeling very often a product will say squalene but it doesn't tell you where it's from Uh, if you look if you start looking at your labels and you find it most likely if it is if it says only squalene it doesn't say derived from olives then it probably is shark because anyone that's aware of the fact that they well, anywhere that anyone that has switched and has chosen to use plant usually is aware of the problem and will want to announce it. So it's 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 almost like um, you know it's it's a bonus to be able to say, hey, this is this is made from from olives. So labeling, um, being aware of what you use, um, in in choosing products that don't have it. Sometimes the difficulty is you have to actually go to the website of that product and see if they have a, a contents list. And um, on the uh, vaccine side, you know, pharmaceutical companies, they're very, very hard to address and, and deal with. We're, we're working on that. We're trying to start 
communications with them to see if they would consider changing the process. It's going to be a process. They're not going to be able to just swap one for the other because there's a lot of testing that has to happen and um, clinical trials, etc. But the process has to start at some point and um, we're trying to bring in different organizations and um, people that could influence the pharmaceutical industry to even think about making the switch. You know, this is probably not going to happen through laws. It's going to have to be because the corporations want to do the right thing and the consumers want to do the right thing. It's, it's a monumental effort, but I try not to think about how little we can get done, but to just get started and do it anyway. And this is why we wanted to raise the awareness first we're not claiming to have all the answers. We're not claiming to have even exactly every stat and every piece of data about it. We do know it's bad enough and we do know it needs to change. And that's what we're working on. We're, we're trying to make the changes where we can at the time we can. And as you can imagine, trying to do this during COVID um, has been very sensitive. We're, we're trying not to in any way appear as if we want to slow down a COVID vaccine what we are saying is, is that if these vaccines are going to be around for decades to come, we need to start thinking about testing alternatives alongside with the established ones. Because if we never start testing them, they'll never be replaced. And we'll keep having this argument 10 and 20 years from now. I've read several different statistics on how many sharks are killed every year, either from gill nets, shark finning, or for squalene, and the number is somewhere, I think, around 100 million annually. But, you know, please correct me if that has changed. And, and so something that I want to point out is that, or is how our rapid consumption is also just totally incompatible with biological paces. So can you speak a bit about the sexual maturity and gestation periods for sharks, and how that factors into conservation dialogue, as well as the reality that sharks are inching towards extinction. Yeah, I think because there are so many different species, the, it, it varies, of course, you know, how, um, how late their maturity is, and how many young they have, and how old they grow. It's, it varies anywhere from, you know, just looking at the age range, 
from let's say reef sharks may live 20 to 30 years and then you go to like a, a deep sea shark I believe the Greenland shark they they caught one that they think might have been 400 years old but that particular shark may not even be sexually mature until it's 90 or something like that uh, I, it seems impossible for me to you know it seems impossible that an animal like that could even exist but generally speaking to understand how sharks how how they work is to think of mammals you know you sharks are fish but they really reproduce more like other mammals compared to to dolphins for example they have to be sometimes in their teenage years let's say with a great white shark you know they have to be in their teenage years before they're sexually mature then they only have a litter of pups every other year possibly um, they have a long uh, gestation period. They, you know, some species have they're pregnant for anywhere from nine to twelve or thirteen months. So, um, you know, and the litters are small. You know, I think of the whale shark is one that has, you know, maybe thirty to forty young. But most of the shark species have a lot fewer of them. Some only give birth to one, and so you can see that this is not like a tuna that within a year is sexually mature and then lays thousands and thousands of eggs every year. These are animals that reproduce, you know, like dogs and cats. Um, and that is, and they, they live off of protein. So this is one of the biggest reasons why we cannot breed them. You know, even if they could be kept in, in captivity, we could not breed them because the numbers, the reproduction would be so slow. It's, it, it wouldn't be worth it. That's why we're outpacing, you know, outpacing the uh, their numbers um, because they cannot. Re they can. They, most shark species probably cannot handle any commercial exploitation. And meaning, you know, one could say, well, what kind of exploitation could they? Well, they could potentially handle some subsistence fishing. You know, people fishing for food. Uh, just you know, for their village here and there, as long as they're not using it, you know, to, to fuel a whole business. But um, it's very difficult because what we consider to be sustainable is counting the fish that are being caught. And as long as the numbers of fish being caught is kind of somewhat steady, the, the agencies determine that it must be sustainable. But it's by no means that way. By the time the, the numbers plummet, it's often too late for that uh, population to recover. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a very complicated issue to understand. You know, we're fishing more than, than, than the populations can replenish. And we do that for many species, but for sharks, it's especially uh, critical. And if you, if you wanted another number, I mean, the most recent study that just came out uh, says that since 1970, sharks and rays have been declining by 71%. So that means many of those species, because it's, you know, maybe more or less for some, but many of those species are indeed heading for extinction levels. Mm -hmm. I, um, I came across an interview you gave where you talked about the desire to see us move away from these sort of or sort of adrenaline-based industries like shark dives and instead move into ways of knowing that are more subtle and layered. And it's so refreshing to hear this because 
So often, even advocates for sharks are still selling them as this sort of sensational creature that is here for our amusement. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and just really challenging us to move out of this thirst for resources, entertainment, and dominion, and into a new form of relationship between humans and predators. Well, that's, uh, you know, um, shark tourism and uh, diving and diving with sharks is um, in general, in general, a very positive thing. You know, it, it, it is what has created the awareness of sharks and has created a, a vast amount of people that love sharks now and that are passionate about sharks. That is the reason why there are so many photos on and, and video clips of sharks on Instagram, on Facebook. That is all very, very positive and it is actually needed. And it is the only reason why sharks are now really being considered as an animal that should be protected. So just to clarify that, I'm not at all against shark diving. I think shark diving is is very, very important. What I don't like is, is if shark diving is presented in a way that promotes the shark diver more than the shark. And in, in what I mean is, is when they um, present it as if it was a daredevil stunt or look at me in the danger zone or look at me uh, dominating this animal or you know in, in a way that this is like oh I bungee jumped in and I then I dove with sharks and I, I'm crazy like that you know this that doesn't help us I think uh, that's becoming less and less uh, prominent though I think people are starting to see through that I think that uh, looking for encounters with sharks is something that sometimes it can be negative like anything else. You know, dive tourism can be damaging to the reef. It can be damaging to, you know, the fish population because there's just too many people in the water. But it is the best thing we have going that as an alternative to fishing because economies still have to be fueled by something. And Diving is um, a great alternative. Um, like everything else, there's good operators, there's bad operators, there's good behavior and bad behavior, and, and sometimes you can't avoid one while you have the other. So I think it's all about how it's done. And um, since shark diving is a little bit new, it had to go through these years of where it was being sensationalized. And Unfortunately, it still is on social media in, in many cases where there's a real tendency to people wanting to be seen diving with sharks. And really, it is more about them than about the sharks and more about them being brave or having some particular skill than, uh, than it is about shark conservation. But in the process, you know, honestly, any positive shark uh, image probably helps the process along. Uh, we won't like all of them, but I, I don't agree with uh, everything needing to be perfect. We, we can't have perfection. It's gonna go a little wrong here and there. So it's, you know, human beings generally kind of overdo certain things and, and the same happened with shark diving. So I think it generally, it's a good thing. I don't think that we can go out and say, everybody leave everything alone. That's not going to happen. And there's too many of us and we have too much interest to be in the ocean, on the ocean, fishing, sport fishing, diving, spear fishing. That is not going to go away. We just have to figure out how to do it in the right way. That's the hardest part. 
you know, figuring out the, the op, how to optimize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, Stephanie, there's so much that you shared with us today that so important and really, I, I feel like is asking us to sit with the complexity and uh, think about these kin that most of us know of, but are not even beginning to understand um, what's happening to them and the implications and the complicity of it all. So um, thank you so much for devoting your time and your love and your passion to these creatures and for being able to communicate to us what's happening in their world, which is our world, of course, and how to connect all the dots. I really appreciated this, this conversation. But if there is anything else that you'd like to add in that hasn't been talked about, please do so. I think I would just walk away by saying that within the community that is, is forming, the community of shark conservationists and, and advocates, and particularly the people that are very involved online, I think I would like everyone to consider to try and be helpful you know, and to not uh, tear into people that are doing things that are less than perfect or perceived to be less than perfect. Because I want to emphasize that again, none of us have the perfect solution. We're always struggling to find those. And none of it is, we're not always addressing the biggest solutions, but we should always stay involved and we should always move things forward, even if it's incrementally. Everyone can do that. And um, I think that's really, I, I always try to look forward and I'd like everyone else to, to look forward and let's keep looking for progress that we can make. If we look back and think about how dire the situation is with sharks, then we're all going to quit right now. So let's just look forward and let's keep looking for ways that we can move the cause forward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much, Stephanie. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Bird by Snow, Handmade Moments, and Left Vessel. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, and Francesca Glassbell, with special research assistance by Julia Jackson.